Welcome to Resilience Rock Sales, your front row seat to rocking your sales game. I'm your host, Stacey Kopas. Today's episode is brought to you by the Academy of Resilience Inner Circle. For more information, head to academyofresilience.com.au. Now on with the show. Welcome to Resilience Rock Sales, and I'm excited to share with you my very special guest for our episode today. Our guest today is Paul Harrison. Welcome to Resilience Rock Sales. Fantastic, Stacey. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Really looking forward to this time with you today. Excellent. And so rather than me reading a big, long, pre-prepared bio and rambling on for ages, I thought a better way to kick us off is if you can just share a little bit of the Paul story. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it is quite a quite a diverse story there. It's a lot, a lot of different uh, sort of sections there. But effectively, where I'm at the moment is um, I'm a corporate trainer, so specialising in uh, in sales, communications, and leadership. I'm based in Melbourne. Um, prior to, I think I've been in Melbourne now for five years. Uh, prior to that, I was 18 years in Europe, uh, where I was. Uh, involved with training as well, um, but uh, also obviously the corporate world and um, do a lot of work over there, a lot of focus on professional development, personal development, um, and then originally from South Africa. So as I said, a lot of different experiences, different roles I've been involved with, certainly different areas that we need to focus on with regards to resiliency, but um, certainly very happy to be in Melbourne and uh, really working with a lot of different corporate uh, corporate businesses, um, training there. Their salespeople, their leadership teams, uh, their communicators are really to help people get better outcomes. So, yeah, I'm very lucky to to be earning a living in one of my greatest addictions, which is learning and teaching, seeing clients be successful and business as well. So, yeah, that's a quick, a pricey view, I suppose. I, I love that. And I love that you said about being able to make a living doing something that you love around learning and that's one of the best parts of being a, a, a speaker, a, a writer, a trainer, or a coach in any way is that we, we get to both learn to be able to then add value to our clients, but we learn so much from our clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what particularly, Stacey, I was thinking about this the other day is it's one thing to understand a business concept. And I know you work with a lot of sales teams as well and understand a business concept. It's another thing to do it. Um, but then once you've done it and you've got the results that you're after, actually utilizing that concept is then actually being able to, to your point, teach it to other people. Because people have got different ways of taking contexts on. You know, we all perceive things differently. And if, you, if you're able to teach a particular concept to, you know, a room of maybe 15 people who've all got different ways of learning, it really does. You, you have to learn that way to be able to apply it. And that's certainly a way to communicate in a way that resonates with the target audience. And that really, I think from a training point of view, absolutely, you'll never stop learning in that role. You know, I think that's uh, that's absolutely a, a great learning aspect there, 100%. And I like just also, so I'd love to bring together a couple of those things that you've sort of talked about there in a couple of your key areas. And so if we're looking at sales and leadership and bringing those two things together. So if we're talking to people that are in a, a sales leadership role. Yeah. How, how, what are you finding with the groups that you're training? What are you finding as sort of the big challenges or some of the shortfalls that you've been seeing um, from a leadership perspective when they are then being, they're in a role where they are training and coaching their teams on an yeah. ongoing basis? What are you, what are you feeling as some of the points that you feel that they could 
that they come to you to learn better um, or some of the things that you feel that they, you know, might be too close to see what they're missing as far as how they could do that better with their teams? Yeah, Stacey, purely from a time, from a, from a, sorry, from a leadership point of view with regards to leadership of sales, I think that one of the biggest challenges that, that a lot of leaders face is effectively time. And I know we all talk about that. We all say we don't have enough time and everybody's right about that, I suppose. And that would then lead itself to sort of time management. But to the point that, that I think you raised there with regards to the coaching and the training that leaders are doing themselves, unfortunately, um, a lot of leaders don't find the time to do coaching until they're in a situation maybe where people, it's very clear that people need support, you know, and we, we think about in, particularly in leadership, we talk a lot about training, coaching skills and all of those great things. But the, the, I think the intention behind learning coaching skills is that you can be proactive with your coaching on an ongoing basis. So you can have a catch up every week or every month uh, with, with your team, with individuals and coaching through things. I think the reality of it is, is a lot of leadership, a lot of um, sales leadership particularly are so busy with managing the teams or overseeing the teams that the only time that coaching skills really come into it is when results are not being achieved by the, by the individual salespeople, which I think is, um, you know, I think it's perfectly understandable. I think it's a real challenge for people out there as well. But I, I would say that would have to be the, the, the biggest challenge that I think leadership is facing from that point of view with regards to being able to coach and, uh, and, and train their teams up. Also, I think, you know, you, you do see from time to time, you see people getting promoted into leadership roles. Um, people who have been phenomenal salespeople are be, being promoted into that, uh, that, that the actual leadership role. And I suppose in hindsight, um, it's, it's easy to see that a skill set to make you a world-class salesperson is not necessarily the same skill set that's going to make you a world-class leader. So somebody who is out there actually getting the results, you know, on the road, converting deals, building relationships with clients, a natural sort of uh, promotion into leadership roles is very often a new set of skills. Maybe not so much a, a brand new set of skills, but certainly those skills applied from a different context, which is now you've got a team that reports into you rather than just a, a client that you need to satisfy. So I think that's a very real challenge that a lot of leadership is dealing with. Um, when it comes to the actual sales individuals, though, I've got to say this, and I'll say this straight out. I think that the biggest challenge, the biggest challenge that salespeople are facing um, that is holding them back from, from getting results or getting better outcomes uh, from the, the selling that they're doing is that they underestimate the value that they bring to the table. The vast majority of people, I've got to say, the vast majority of people that I have the great fortune to work with underestimate the value that they bring to the table. You think about this now, the way this plays out, it feeds into a term that a lot of your audience will be familiar with, which is the imposter syndrome. But I believe human beings naturally, we underestimate that value. And when we're talking about selling, anytime you're going to providing training for salespeople, you, I'm sure you would have heard this as well. You will hear people saying, oh, people are only buying on price. And then well known sales trainers will very often will say, well, price is only an issue in the absence of value. Now, there's a little bit more context I would normally go into that, but here's the thing. If you've got salespeople out there who are talking to prospects and those salespeople underestimate the value they bring to the table, they are never going to be in a position to really be able to build value in those conversations. So the biggest problem I see whenever I'm training salespeople is I have to get them to see the value that they bring. I have to get them to understand that the reason this person is speaking with you, this prospect is speaking with you, 
it's because they've got a problem or they've got an aspiration they want to move towards. And the salesperson has to realize that, and I don't even call my, my, my salespeople, salespeople, they do, they're world-class problem solvers. Because if I can get them to understand that and see that this common knowledge that they have in their heads, that they actually make some subject matter experts, they're in a much better position. Firstly, from an emotional point of view, I think a confidence point of view, they've got a lot more certainty in what they're saying. And that plays through obviously in body language and, and tonality and stuff like that. But then they're in a real position to be able to build that value in the eyes of the decision maker. Because, you know, you've got two salespeople selling to you and neither of them are building perceived value. The only common denominator between those two options is price. And that's where you can't be surprised if you've got salespeople getting pressed on price the whole time, if they're not able to communicate that value. And in order to do that, you have to see the value you're bringing. So I think that that underestimation of the value that we bring is something that it's, I think it's part of human, the human hardwiring to start with, and that's a whole nother conversation. But I think very often, um, a lot of the insecurities that we have as human beings come from underestimating that value we actually bring. Um, and once we can get people to really take ownership of that, then it's like you start keeping your own momentum, uh, especially people who consider themselves empathetic salespeople. Now, I know a lot of people would sort of give me a funny look if I talk about empathetic salespeople, but, you know, I work with a lot of phenomenal people who've got, they are really see themselves as empaths, as empathetic people. So they're great at building rapport, uh, building, uh, uh, you know, high degree of emotional intelligence, building relationships. But until they're in that position where they can say to the client, okay, let's close the deal, let's move forward. You know, that's a real challenge for them until they start realizing as soon as the client says yes to you, then they're in a position to solve their problem. And that's, but again, people have to start seeing the value they, they bring. Otherwise it's uh, it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult role to be in, which is selling. That's so, so interesting. And do you find that that is more prevalent in Australian audiences? Because obviously we have the culture around minimizing and not wanting to stand out and not wanting to, to really own your value. Do you, have you found that that's been more so with the Aussies that you train? Phenomenal question. I, I got to say, I think that there's a high degree of awareness around it. I really think there's a high degree of awareness around it. And I think there is potentially a fear of being seen like that, uh, seen in a negative light. And very often, I mean, we do a whole exercise with regards to building, uh, seeing the, the, the value that you bring or what I call raising somebody's professional self-esteem. Um, and a fear that people have is that they're going to be deemed as arrogant. So, uh, rather than confident, and I have to make a very clear point there that when you see the value that you bring and your professional self-esteem, again, you know, we all, we know the term self-esteem, how we feel about ourselves, but professional self-esteem is how we feel about ourselves in the workplace environment. So it's just a a term I use. And if I can increase that, then people are going to feel more confident. Um, I have to make the differentiation between confidence and arrogance, because when we can frame that up in somebody's mind, then they're going to be able to, uh, they'll feel more confident being confident rather than being terrified of being arrogant. So um, as soon as I can get them to see that confidence allows them to contribute and solve people's problems and focus on things like active listening and creating empathy and picking up uh, uh, sales signs and stuff like that versus arrogance, which comes from, an, I believe, insufficiency. Whenever I'm training people, um, I'll say to them, you know, arrogance, I believe, comes from an insufficiency, which is something that's insufficient inside. And also, I think arrogance is a veneer and it can be, it can be broken very quickly, by, particularly by world-class communicators and great persuaders. 
Um, so as soon as we get that aspect with regards to confidence is a good thing because it allows you to contribute, that's when people buy into it and they be okay with it. But you're quite right. If, if, if people are terrified of being deemed as a know-it-all or, you know, high on their own sort of the track record or what have you, those, that fear of getting a negative label is something that holds people back massively. So, um, having worked a lot in the, in UK and Europe, um, I think there was also some concern about that, but, um, I would say there is certainly a, a high degree of awareness. Don't be arrogant. Don't be sounding like you, you know, it all. So yeah, I think there's a, there's a concern there, but, um, as soon as we can get a reframe on that, we can get people thinking in a different way about it, then it's okay to be confident because you're serving your client, which is that, uh, which is awesome. Yeah. And also there's that link, isn't it, between the, the confidence and the competence, isn't it? And having that, you know, that you've got the competence, then that leads to the confidence rather, as you said, rather than the arrogance or the ego and the real showy type of thing. And as you said, it's usually a deflection away from something else. So it's, it's really interesting to drill down into those insights. And, and cause I think there's, there's often a perception that people in sales are confident and yes. Because it is, isn't it? That's why people go, oh, so someone's a bit of an extrovert or they're, they're confident. So they're just going to go well in sales. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, it's, it, it really, it, you, you're quite right. Because I think a lot of the time if, and I don't know what, you know, what everybody else's journey was like, but I think that if you, if you're deemed to have that positive outgoing personality type and you don't have a qualification, what else are you going to think? Well, get into selling, you know, that type of thing. Um, but I'll tell you, I think that some of the, the people that I've had the great fortune to train, when we have people that are moving from technical positions into sales roles, so you've got sales, uh, technically sound salespeople, um, when you can take that competent sales, a uh, competent technical aspect and couple it with the ability to communicate, the ability to sell, the ability to influence and persuade truthfully, honestly, and ethically, and people then realize how much they can contribute. That's when people really become very empowered in, in, in the work they do. Um, the, but the, the, the fascinating thing is as well, you talk about competence and confidence. I completely agree with you. Um, the thing is though, again, I think that very often we underestimate how much we actually do know, you know, and how much, how valuable that is to the, to the target audience, to our clients. And I, I very often say to my salespeople that you've got to realize that the people that you're talking to have got problems to keep them up at night. And there's this common knowledge between your ears that could effectively solve their problems. It's going to help. And once I can get people to really realize that, then they, they start taking that more confidence because they start noticing it. But I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, human beings are quicker. We're quicker to notice our, our shortcomings before we notice our achievements. And I think it's got something to do with human beings, you know, being naturally negatively hardwired that we can notice the negatives ahead of the positive. And I think that that really reflects on how we perceive ourselves. So a huge thing, one of the very much the foundational aspects I bring in with training is to get people to start seeing the value that they bring. Because then, and I'll tell you what, I think that that also then leads into a sense of purpose in the work you do. Because when you can see when you can be present with someone and you can give them a piece of information that just gives them that aha moment, you can see the pupils dilating, you know, the, the reaction. It's like that gives you that, 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 I don't know if it's serotonin or dopamine feeling, but it's, it's like when you start seeing that good stuff that you do and you get that positive reinforcement from it, 
I really believe that's where a sense of purpose in work comes from as well. You know, we talk about sense of purpose. So many people talk about creating purpose in work, but how do you actually do that? Because I, you'll know this as well. It's like, as trainers, as facilitators, as trainers, we can't just tell people what they need to do, i.e. create a sense of purpose in the work they do, but we've got to be able to teach them how to do it as well. Otherwise, it's just true but useless. It's like sending somebody into a very confrontational situation and saying, just be confident. It's like, that's not going to work, you know? It's an interesting concept there with regards to how we, how we think about these things. There we go. I hope that made sense. Yeah. It, it does. It does. And I, I just, I really love this train of thought that we're on. And, I, and one thing that stood out earlier is the, the professional self-esteem, and I've not heard it sort of labeled that before, but it just, it totally makes sense. But so often that we do have a different persona at home and at work. Yeah. Yeah. And so being able to then really highlight that and then work on that and have for the starting point is always the self-awareness, isn't it? It's yeah. And so much that, and it's like, if we're, if we're sort of looking at as looking at resilience in that context, then self-awareness is such a huge part of it. Absolutely. Now, you, let me know your thoughts on this, Stacey. We talk about the, the term self-awareness and, and obviously you're very well known for the, the work you do in resiliency. How self-awareness, I think that term is, it's common knowledge, but how much of it do you think is common practice? People actually being self-aware. I don't think it, I don't think it is because one of the things that I see more, more and more these days is people don't spend enough time with themselves, like yeah. purely present with yeah. themselves. It's always a pick up the phone or it's, it's always, there's an external thing rather than actually intentionally taking time to reflect and not, because I guess, yeah. People already just stop and beat themselves up because that's probably the first point. It's like, yeah. it's, again, that negativity bias that yeah. in. So there's a kind of level of self-awareness that's happening there, but on the negative side, whereas taking that time to reflect and assess and do a little bit of a recap of different situations and go, so where did I, what went well there, all those type of things? What did I bring? What did I learn? You know, what was my energy like in these situations? Um, but intentionally doing that. And so for me, like it's part of resilience and you know, I have rituals for resilience, which are those rocks, the rocks that you, you put into your, into your regular schedule. And so actually intentionally taking the time yeah. to, to actively practice self-awareness. Yeah. And, and I, and I don't think, I, I don't hear people talk about practicing self-awareness. It's just like, oh, you know, self-awareness or you need to be self-aware, but like, what does that look like? How do we do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I, I think it's something that we maybe, you know, maybe it's not talked about a lot. I, certainly I see it in, in the leadership training when, when I'm doing leadership training, people will mention things like self-awareness, but again, is this something you're actually doing or is this something you're just giving lip service to? You know, people say, I don't have time to do that. And that's fair enough. Um, but again, it's, I, I guess it's what's a priority because we always find time for our priorities. It's versus other things that we, that we have to do in life. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting aspect there that whether we are self-aware, whether we have infrastructure to build around, create that habit of self-awareness, I suppose is another whole conversation as well. But yeah, I think it's something that's spoken about a lot. 
but we can certainly benefit from doing a lot more of it. Maybe there's a workshop in it. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Without hope, we have nothing, Stacey. Without... That's it. Well, there's a gap. There's a gap, clearly. But yeah, I think that is part of that. And then there's also thinking about this, because I think this is, it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing to, to explore, because as you said, it's, it's usually just self-awareness. Yep. Okay. That's it. But as, as I feel it's like a bit of a two-way thing that happens with that, because there's the kind of the mirror to yourself. Yeah. But there's also that actively engaging in, you know, feedback and coaching and things like that with other people. Yeah. Because there is that whole, you can't read the label from inside the jar thing, the outside eyes and the importance of that. Because I I know just in my own experience, it's been other people that have seen things in, in me before Mm -hmm. I'd had even any idea that it was anything that was even remotely possible, interesting or unique or helpful or valuable in any way, shape or form. Yeah. So having that combination of actively engaging in those coaching conversations with others. But also I know for me personally, meditation is really important. So sitting in silence, because it's the thing is a lot of people are just like, well, silence, that's a bit too scary. Sure. But, you know, being present in that and then journaling is a big one. I find Mm -hmm. it's just like at the end of the day, keeping that journal and a couple of key thoughts for the day what happened reflecting on that sort of stuff, but taking the time to actually actively reflect, I find is super helpful. So, but as you said, it comes down to people say it's a time thing, but I don't think it takes a lot of time and it's not something that we have to do all day, every day. I guess if there's that element of intentionality around it though, then again, where the the intentions are, then more time and presence comes to those. Absolutely. And I think you, I think you summed it up perfectly there with regards to intention intention and building a structure around doing something like that um because we can all say all right it's it's a great thing to do and let me do it but then you don't schedule it and life gets in the way next thing you're a month later and you feel no more self-aware you know no it's just that whole kicking the can down the road isn't it and then suddenly it's like everything just ends up you get swamped and i was like if you you don't do things as, as, as they're going then my goodness, it, it it comes back to to bite you down the track. That's for sure. Absolutely. The, the one side on that though, because I've, I've undertaken a few changes over the last sort of three or four months, just for me personally. And the one thing I have uh, really, I guess, relearned again, and and maybe this is some some more sort of hope for your uh, for your audience. But when we start a new habit, so you you want to pick up a new habit or whatever it is. Um, you have to have that intention around it to start with. But ultimately then after a few times you do it, it becomes just sort of business as usual. And it's it's like when something becomes almost part of your daily routine, you don't have to consciously think about it or negotiate with yourself or motivate yourself to do it. You just get up and do it. I mean, something I've added to my my sort of daily routine is going for a walk as as often as I can, you know, and I've got sort of a step goal every day and um, and that's helped massively. And I'll tell you what, there was some, there was some heavy negotiations when I first started it, between sort of getting myself into the habit. But now if I don't go for my walk, I'm sort of a little bit upset and I want to do double the next day. It's part of the, it's habitual. And then it, it doesn't take a huge amount of momentum or effort or, or motivation to get you, get you going there. I've seen some of your posts on Facebook and you've got a pretty hefty step goal that you've been putting out there. Like, my gosh. 
I, I think in fairness, I think that one day was a personal challenge myself. Okay. So, so it's not reflective of the everyday. <laughs> not every day. No, I think it took me about four and a half hours to do to do like 31,000 steps or something. But that was that's, a, that's big. So we don't recommend starting with something that big. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I was, I was pretty finished by the end of that day. I think I need a new pair of shoes as well, but there, there we go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. But, but I, I liked it again. It's that, that, that forming those habits and it's interesting. And it's like, I've been having a lot of conversations recently about the difference between a habit and a ritual as well. Okay. Yeah. And so I think things, so habits become the automatic. So that's the thing. Whereas I think the rituals are the things that you do with intention and, you know, with intention and presence. Okay. On those. And I guess then, yeah, the ritual could then become a habit as well. So yeah, it depends. And you've got, you obviously got your negative habits that have a negative net result and you have your habits and things that have the positive result. But yeah, yeah. it's like for, for my one, it is the journaling. So I've actually just hit eight years of writing an evening journal without missing a night. Really? And it's, but it is, it's the thing now I, I can't go to bed. Yeah without writing something, it doesn't matter what time it is, but I just can't because it's just, it's part of my wiring now. And Beautiful. I would just, I couldn't imagine not doing it. Stacey, do you think that that's, that, that helps you sleep as well with regards to getting all your thoughts onto, onto paper? Do you think there's something in that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's why okay. I like the evening journal. And it just started as just like, I'm just going to write one sentence. Yes. Just, what was, what was the best thing that happened today? And I used the prompt today. I had the opportunity to, and my only commitment was to write a sentence because yeah. I think people, again, like we talk about the steps thing. It's like, you don't start with 35,000 steps. You might start with a couple of a thousand maybe, and then just build it up. Cause if we, if we start with something too big, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. Absolutely. Whereas it's better to start with something smaller and then do more than yeah. go, oh my gosh, I didn't do it. Cause it was just so big and overwhelming and just, well, I don't have time, but yeah, the, Writing, doing the bit of the, the brain dump as part of it, like it definitely makes a big difference on when your head hits the pillow, you don't, you're not churning over those things. You've already parked those things and you've done all that sort of stuff. It makes a massive yeah. difference. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. I really like that because I, I, there's a lot of people who battle with sleep actually, and, and I, maybe I'm not telling anybody anything new, but I think there's a lot of people who, um, who are keen to get, you know, keen to be able to sleep a whole lot better. And of course. Sleep is so important for recovery and sort of our mental thought process and everything like that. Um, actually, to such a degree that I think there was, there was a book that was written recently. I haven't bought the book, but I heard it's uh, been recommended by a fair few people and it's on sort of the ability to sleep better. Um, and I think certainly one of the aspects that keep people up is thinking about those things that they're, uh, you know, that they're mulling over in their brain. I think if, you, if you're getting it down onto paper, I think it can certainly, um, certainly help there as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely a, a, a late convert to the sleep camp. It was like, I still, I was like, I think it's probably an age thing as well, but through the twenties and, you know, a chunk of the thirties, it was like, oh, sleep when I'm dead. And then, <laughs> then, you, then you do the whole Bon Jovi song. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and then, then you go, yeah, okay. Five, six hours a night, but then it's not until you actually then start to be intentional about the seven hours or working out what that sweet spot is for yourself. Yeah. And mine's seven. Um, and then that's when I truly realize the difference between being functional and being like optimal. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you were talking about the ability to to show up and be confident and bring value and all those type of things into all of these sales interactions, and especially when they're happening like a lot, like depending on the industry, there can be a lot of volume of that going on in the course of a day as well. So to be able to actually start the day with a full tank and be really sharp and present, like I can imagine that that would make a big difference. Is that something that you have seen with the teams that you've worked with? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I think certainly it's an aspect. I'll tell you what though, I think is, um, is a real depleter of energy is people focusing on and worrying about and spending energy on things that are outside of the area of control. So if let's say that we were able to get a good night's sleep, um, you've got effectively those three different areas the next day where you wake up and you're well rested. You've got those three areas where you can spend your physical, mental, and emotional energy on. So it's what's in your control, what's in your influence, and then what's out of your control. And getting, and again, maybe this comes back to the self-awareness piece that you mentioned a little bit earlier, but getting people to realize um, when they're focusing on things that are outside of their areas of control uh, or influence. So they're completely out of their control, completely out of their influence. And when they're burning energy in that particular area, um, the fascinating thing is, is whilst I think it's part of how our brain does it, it depletes energy. And they say in the... uh, in the, in the combat sports world that um, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And if you are spending energy on something that's out that you're not going to get a return on. So it's, you know, you're worried about things that are completely outside of that area of control or influence. You're not going to get a return on that. So being able to, to help people just spend that physical, mental, and emotional energy on things that can control things that can influence that really keeps that energy bar a lot fuller and helps you get that return on uh, return on your energy invested. Um, so that's certainly something that I see a lot. You know, you make a, a commitment to eating clean. Let's say you're going to eat clean, and um, you know that means you're going to you're going to spend thirty minutes a night cooking your dinner and stuff like that. But you get back from a whole day where you're physically exhausted, you've got nothing left. I tell you that Uber Eats order app looks pretty good right about then. You know what I'm saying? So it's like. And, yep. and then you get angry with yourself because like, why not make such a bad decision? Well, the reason we made a bad decision was you were exhausted. Um, but again, people, and I think this happens on a, on, uh, on a basis that people aren't always aware of until they start looking for it. But when we're spending that physical, mental, and emotional energy, concerned about things that are outside of that area of control, I think that really depletes people very, very quickly. And that would play into resiliency as well, because if you're not well-rested, you're going to make those wrong decisions and uh, resiliency is going to get weaker, I'm guessing. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it definitely definitely uh, impacts it, that's for sure. Honestly, the decision-making thing, that makes a, a massive difference when you're well-rested. Yeah, we're talking about that as far as resilience goes. In your experience with the, you know, the the different organizations that you've worked with and supported, what role do you feel that resilience plays in sales success? Listen, I think it's in the sales industry, regardless of how good you are, rejection is always going to be an aspect. So I think that they, I think resiliency is going to be a big part. I, I really, really do. Again, to your point as well, especially when you're dealing with a high volume, a high amount of volume uh, of engagement. So people who are maybe working in call centers, outbound calling, um, talking to a lot of prospects, a lot of clients on a day-to-day basis. I think resiliency is a big aspect there. Because the thing is, and again, I, I talk about the, the, the professional self-esteem or the mindset stuff, which I'm guessing resiliency would fall into largely. 
that if the mind is not working well, you can have the best strategies in the world, but you're not going to use them. Because, and I, I, I talk a lot about when people get to a state of overwhelm and we go to fight or flight. And um, because what I need to be able to do is always keep my clients away from that. I always need to keep them in a positive, empowered, mental, and emotional state. Because if we can do that, they'll say the right thing, do the right thing, get the right outcomes. But if the mindset is not in the right place, strategy means very little. Okay. And I know I'm probably going to get some people's backs up with that, but fair enough. If somebody, if you're in a state of overwhelm, I mean, let's take that, that classic scenario, which, which everybody's been in, you know, the last six months where you got angry with yourself on one occasion, because you had an interaction with somebody who had a, a, maybe a different point of view to you, you deemed it as a, as a potential threat and you walked away. And then 20 minutes later, you got angry with yourself and said, you know, if only I'd said A, B and C, that would have got it, you know? And in that moment, it's like, why couldn't I think like that? Well, why couldn't I think of those words in the moment? Because you were in a state of overwhelm, you're moving towards fight or flight. And I think when we're in that state, we lose cognitive ability. We, we can't think clearly. And I, would, I think that would play in resiliency as well. I think that if people, status first, status first. So if people are in a good state, then you can utilize those world-class clever techniques, all your NLP, all your auto-suggestion, all these clever closing techniques and stuff like that. But if there's no resilience, if the mindset's in the wrong place, it's a tough gig. It's a real tough situation. Do you have any specific methods or practices that you actually share with your people that you're working with to actually then have them to be able to do that? To do what? To stay in a more resourceful frame of mind? Yeah, to be in that present focus, be really focused on their status rather than their strategies. Yeah, well, I break down a few things. So I'll, I'll share this with you. I hope this resonates what I'm about to say. But I believe everything from a state point of view, from how we are physically, mentally, and emotionally, very often, particularly mentally and emotionally, will start off on what we're focusing on. So I'll say these, these four things. So it's like, Whatever you focus on dictates how you feel. How you feel dictates your frame of mind. Your frame of mind dictates your actions. So what you say and do. And the actions dictate your outcomes. So very often, um, and I talk about this with regards to increasing that professional self-esteem, but if the human being is naturally inclined to notice the times we've messed up, more so than the times we've uh, done really well, then we can then we can start sort of perceiving ourselves as people who haven't done very well. If that, if that negative bias thing. So what I ultimately want to do is I want to get people to start noticing the value that they bring. So at the end of the day, to your journaling point as well, I get them to ask themselves a question with regards to what have they done well today? And just asking that question, it's actually going to start to get you to think in a different way, which is, uh, what did you do to well today? What are the five things I've done to add massive value? Something along those lines, whatever's appropriate. And um, getting people to write those things down, because then ultimately what starts happening is if you ask that question, your brain has to go away and find that and make it easier for us to think about the good things we've done, the places that we have added value. And here's the other thing. When we start building this truth from our reference point, as far as the, the good things that we've done, it starts to kill that imposter syndrome because that imposter syndrome that's in all of our you know, we all have to deal with it somewhere along the line that you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're going to get found out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is, I, I believe that comes from that negative, you know, that negative hardwiring we have. 
But if you kill that with truth, stuff that you've actually done is true, that voice gets quieter and quieter and quieter because you, you, you may well have heard the scenario of feeding the good wolf versus the bad. Um, mm-hmm. So effectively, you know, the, the empowering voice in your mind is showing you what you have done and that you do add value and it quietens that negative self-talk like nothing else. And again, it doesn't lead to a degree of arrogance. It leads to a degree of confidence. And again, and being okay in what, in what you're dealing with, because here's the other thing. I believe it's nearly impossible, and this might upset some people what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it. It's nearly impossible for human beings to actively listen, especially in confrontational situations. What I'm finding, and I know I'm going down a little bit of a, a, a rabbit hole here, but what I'm finding is anytime I thought, every time we're brought in to deal with C-suite decision makers who are in conflict, very often you've got two people who are good people that both got good track records, but they're in a conflict over something. They both know the term active listening. So I believe active listening is common sense, but it's not common practice because as soon as any degree of negative emotion starts coming into a conversation, then we stop listening to understand and we start listening to get our point across. And I believe the reason behind that, I heard somebody else say this with regards to this aspect, but somebody said, or I read somewhere that the deepest need of the human soul is to feel understood. And as soon as that negative emotion comes in, my desire to feel understood, get my point across is more important to me than my desire to understand you. So that's why I say, when I see active listening, hear of active listening, it's great. It's a great goal, but it's common sense, but I don't believe it to be common practice because there's that trap in human behavior, which is that, that deepest need of that human soul, if that's accurate. So when I come back to coming back to that professional self-esteem and where that confidence is good, when you're good, when you're okay, you know, you've got value to add, you can stay in that positive, empowered, mental and emotional state. You're not going to get thrown off. And I, I see this a lot with my negotiators. If they're negotiating with aggressive individuals, if they're using that as a tactic, then very often I have to keep my person here in a, in a good, empowered state. If they know they've got value here, aggression is going to have a lot less of an impact and throw people off. So again, I come back to that staying in that positive state, not just saying stay in it, but actually providing those tools to be able to, to be in that empowered state, because then you can really start to actively listen then you can actually start picking up on the subtext and you know, what else is going on. But also then from a communicating point of view, you're, you're, you're a lot more aligned with your message. You know, there, there's a saying out there that fake it till you make it. Yes, sure. I can understand how that could work to some degree, but at the highest level, fake it till you make it, you're going to pick up on it. Why? Because if somebody is talking to you and they're trying to fake it till they make it, you're going to pick up on an incongruence, maybe in their tonality and body language. The word selection you have, they might be saying stuff that makes perfect sense, but you're just going to get that feeling. Eh, something's a little bit off because that person's not aligned with it in that moment. So a lot of stuff there comes from good professional self-esteem. That's maybe the point I'm getting. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's amazing. And so it sounds like from that, there are those rituals that have become habits that you can then put in place in order to intentionally build that professional self-esteem. Absolutely. And you know what the, the beautiful thing with it is, Stacey, as well, is it, it, it really starts to reduce stresses and the sufferings that people might have as a result of work. Because 
I, I really believe, and the more I think about this, may, maybe I'm just, maybe I've got heavy confirmation bias, but I believe a lot of the things that keep people up at night, the work-related stresses and concerns about work, I believe a lot of that stuff comes from people not believing that they've got the skill sets or the confidence to deal with the challenges they face at work. And when you can build somebody else's confidence, they build their confidence so they, they have confidence in what they can do and then also provide them with those strategies. By default, that is going to reduce the, 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 the stress. I'm going to use the term suffering maybe, but um, it's because the thing is, we've all had things in the past that used to stress us out, but now we have the confidence and skill sets to deal with it. We're going to get a good night's sleep, right? You know, it's seven hours. <laughs> yeah, prolonged stress does become suffering though, doesn't it? There we go. Yeah. So that's super helpful. I, I, I really love where this has gone and this whole conversation around the professional self-esteem is fantastic. And I love, again, like I just love hearing, and even the things you've shared, again, they're simple things. And this is what I, I just, I love the simplicity. Because so often people just go, oh, yeah, I know that. And then it's go, they write it off. <laughs> Whereas again, it's just like this, we're just reinforcing that if we do these simple things consistently over time, the compounding effect is where the power is. Absolutely. And so, and, and doing these things proactively and that's my approach to resilience. And it sounds like that's your approach to building the professional self-esteem. And I can see that there's a beautiful alignment between those two things there. Absolutely. But again, it's that consistently proactively over time rather than thinking that I need these tools when the proverbial hits the fan. Yeah. It's like, no, we need to do these every day, like going to the gym. So Absolutely. that you don't just wake up one day and go, yeah, I'm going to do a few curls and because I want some bulk, you know, I want some guns. Yes. I'm just going to do a few curls and think that that's just going to cut it. But, you know, it's happening to do those things consistently over time. And then if you stop it, then that then diminishes as well. So yeah. I just think that it's just been a, it's been an awesome conversation and I love just being able to bring that element to it, which is, which is awesome. And so if there are people listening that want to learn more about particularly that any aspect of what we've talked about in the sales or leadership, the communication is professional self-esteem, where's yeah. the best place for people to get in touch with you? LinkedIn's probably the best, Paul Harrison. I think the URL is linkedin.com forward slash Paul Harrison trainer, which I set up a few years ago. So I, yeah, I think that's probably the best place to start and they can get an idea of the, the type of things that I've put up there. And Stacey, thank you so much for this opportunity. It, it's beautiful to see, to see you again and to interact with you again and love all the stuff you're doing. And, that, and I think there's such a place for what you're doing as well. Um, because I think uh, if we can build resiliency, then there's uh, a lot less things that we're, uh, we're, we're, we're fearful of out there, which I think is great. Wonderful. And I'm so grateful that you've been able to be part of that today. And we have one more question before we wrap up. Sure. Is the name of the podcast is Resilience Rocks Sales. So I happen to have a playlist on Spotify called Resilience Rocks. Okay. And so it's about 20 hours there now that I've curated and it's music that will help you to lift that energy, build that resilience. If you're having that flat moment, if you're wanting to get into a good state before a call or you just need to get a bit of energy out. You just want to really need that lift. So Resilience Rocks playlist. So do you have a song that you would like to contribute to or you have a go-to song that if you were to play that pump up song to just completely shift your energy, what would that be for you? Oh, Stacey, I just got goosebumps when you asked this question. There's one song, there's one song that I will play anytime I'm sort of 
let me use the word scared or excited, or I'm wanting to go through something challenging that's going to give me a reward on the other side. There's one song and it just, it's, it's, it's so much for me. And it just gets me in that right frame of mind. I sum up everything else. I remember all the other times that I've used a song to get through and that's Lose Yourself by Eminem. <laughs> I because when you're in that moment, you can lose yourself in that moment. And that's where we get into that flow state. And that's when you're fully present. And it's like, you got one shot, one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment. Would you capture it? Would you let it slip? And I, I love that. I love that ultimate finality. I love the losing yourself in the moment. That's what I would love to contribute. It's probably there already. Yeah. It's actually very high up on the playlist, but it's going to get linked in the show notes just to, to do that. But I think it, it is, it's one of those ones. It's just, and it's, it's about just leaving it all out there as well, Absolutely. isn't it? And I think that that's, it's just such a good lesson in that, isn't it? So beautiful. But again, the power of a song, you know, three to five minutes, you immerse in that. My gosh, isn't it incredible how it can just changes your state in a way that I, I don't, I, I don't know there's anything else that can make a shift in such a short period of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's great stuff. And yeah, use the, yeah, I think use intentionally can give us that earned advantage in challenging situations. And uh, that's what we do the hard work. Fantastic. Amazing. Thank you so much again. Resilience Rocks playlist. Thank you for joining us on Resilience Rocks sales. And until next time, be your best. Thanks, Stacey. Cheers. Thanks for joining us again this week on Resilience Rock Sales. Don't just listen though, take action. The best sales professionals are always learning. Head over to resiliencerocks.com now to go backstage and get the resources mentioned today to help rock your sales goals. <laughs> <laughs>